Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Have you heard this? Podcast Philosophy versus Improv. They got a, a website. It's philosophyimprov.com. If you want to support them, you could do it a couple ways. You could go to patreon.com slash philosophyimprov. Or there's also now uh, an option right through Apple Podcasts. You just click on the subscribe button. And they take a little of your money and maybe part of your house. I'm not sure how it works. Anyway, enjoy. This is Philosophy versus Improv, where two sages try to teach each other a thing or two, and maybe you, the audience, get something out of it as well. All right. Cat barf is mitigated. I won't kick it again, uh, hopefully, and I will clean it up when we are done. It seems like that might be a useful prop. <laughs> I don't know how heavy we want to go on the props. I mean, I have, oh, my, I, I, I have my giant pickle. I have my <laughs> uh, novelty uh, pair of jacks. <laughs> I think we'll use uh, the noise of a cat hawking up a hairball might be useful, but I'm not sure if the hairball itself will be of any utility <laughs> to us. Hey, here's my cat jacking off. And see, I have the giant jacks here. To, oh, to demonstrate okay. that. You know, this, so, is, uh, this might be a family show. I, oh, I don't know. But, uh, <laughs> we, you know, I have to decide whether I'm going to mark our episodes as explicit. And I've become morally opposed to that whole concept. When I started Partially Examined Life, I would mark them as explicit so we could swear. But, you know, we didn't swear that often and we swore less and less as time went on. And now I just feel like it's nobody's business. Sure. In fact, if you mark it as explicit, then it doesn't show in India and some other places like that at all. Wow. So, and some people like Bill Burr, his podcast, he swears all the time he doesn't mark it as explicit. Why? Why should we bother to even open that? Well, there's a difference between explicit and kid safe. And I know that is a mark on YouTube where you can mark something specifically kid safe. I think that's probably the better way to do it. Uh, or yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, is this with children in mind. And I feel like that's probably the better way of going about it because while well, we can disagree as to whether or not something is explicit or not, or, or the degree to which it is you know, PG 13 is it R? I would like to think we can all think, well, that's child safe. Speaking of child safe, I'm Mark Lintonmeyer, a philosophy child who's down to learn improv. And I am Bill Arnett, a improv old man, yet a child philosophically. Each of us has come with a lesson in mind to convey to the other. We have two rules for this conversation. We're not going to say what that lesson is up front, and we're not going to take turns. When the lessons seem done, we'll tell you what we learned. Our judges will decide which lesson produced the most profound effect. If the judges do their goddamn job, fuckers. We are definitely now explicit, or at least not child safe. Definitely not child safe. Don't you think children hear that all the time anyway? They do. They just need to hear it, you know, in the right context. When you step in the cat barf is when they should hear it. <laughs> well, we are currently with my own kids, you know, who are middle elementary school. When do we start doing PG-13? There's a lot of different PG-13s out there. No swearing in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, but there is beating hearts pulled out of chests. Which is okay. Which is <laughs> that, That's fine. Ultraviolence. Yes. Those naughty words. How dare you? That pierce the pen is mightier than the, uh, the hand ripping the heart unaided by a sword out of a chest. Well, you know, that whole notion of hearts being ripped out does kind of play into my lesson for today. Ooh, start us off. <laughs> what is your prompt? Should we start with a skit or do you have a question or how do we want to start? I think we should start with a little scene. And this is something that you have expressed consternation, concern about in prior episodes. And I just want to stab this thing right in the heart. And that is, I would love, love, love to give the audience 30 to 45 seconds of absolute, complete boredom. Just the most boring, nothing interesting is going on in this scene. And I know we, I have mentioned that before. There have been some struggles, but I think this time we can do it. 
I just feel like I already do that in my regular philosophy podcast, provide really quite a long stretches of boredom. So I, I <laughs> well, we've been improvising this whole time as we learned episode one. So in some ways, it's truly been, uh, been the case. Kali Ma, Kali Ma, another heart coming out of a chest. Yes. So boring. Is that a good <laughs> beginning to the skit or is that not boring enough? Uh, we can get into I the skit. I keep calling it a skit. I know that's not allowed. I know that's, that is a rookie move. It's inf- insulting, in fact. A skit is typically something that is scripted. Ah. And in the scripted world, sketch is the preferred yes. nomenclature to skit. So I was twice removed from, <laughs> yes. from that being a proper usage. <laughs> you, you do a skit around a campfire. You do a sketch for the camera. Something more official, something more better. Boy Scouts should be more pretentious and be like, we're going to do a scene here. We're going to do a piece. I think that'd be best. We'll do a performance art piece. Yes, perhaps have some programs around the campfire. Let's dive into a non-is-this-a-scene-or-not-a-scene moment. Do you want to start this? We're walking through the curtain, entering the scene upon the stage. Yes. The the stage is empty, except it's our job to... uh, just clean up. Indeed. And that's what we're doing. I have a mop. What mm-hmm. did you bring? Well, just the, the bucket and the, the broom. Ah, a lot of good a lot of good shows came out here tonight. I don't know. Have you had a chance to see the see the play that's that's performing? Um, no. I just kind of prefer the the cleanup. Hey, that's fine. Afterward. That's fine. Yeah. It gets messy up here. I'm not even sure. I've seen little bits of it, but I've tried to guess what happens in the play based on what we clean up. And that's been kind of fun. It seems that there might be shoes involved in the play. Yeah, because you got these footprints in this. I don't know if this is uh, supposed to be blood or mock blood, or it's probably you know chocolate syrup or something. But uh, the yeah, shoe prints do show up, and they get kind of sticky too. So it makes me think maybe it's in the first act or something. You know, I don't know. Some of the shoe prints are larger. Yeah, and some of the shoe prints are less large. I mean, I don't want to be sexist, but it's probably like a dude and a lady. Oh, who shot whom? What are we thinking? Shoes do not shoot. <laughs> well, I mean, let's follow, let's follow the shoes around. Let's follow the shoes. Now, over here, they're together, right? And then over here, it looks like the big shoes are shuffling. Is this person staggering? Are they trying to maintain their balance after being shot? It can't be Tim Conway. He's dead. Remember his, like, old man shuffly character? Well, yeah, yeah, but I'm just saying, you know. But it's someone impersonating Tim Conway. Or, or doing that kind of a thing, yeah. Okay, okay, that's, that's a little more uh, plausible. Let's, let's solve this mystery. Let's get to be detectives here, and guess what happens in the play? That these big shoe, shoes are shuffling, okay? I think that someone in the smaller shoes, which could be, they appear to be high heels, some kind of lady shoe, you can see here, where there's a heel that's separated from the, the other part of the shoe. I think she shot a guy. I think she shot this guy. He staggered around, bled everywhere. Then where is the body? Well, I mean, it's a play. It's a they're not really. But we clean up, and yeah, there but, is the blood. There is no body. Well, they're not really dead. They're not really dead. All right, the curtain comes down, and the, the you solved the mystery. Well, I just no one I, shot anyone. When we see the play, then we can know if our guesses are right based on the forensic evidence play is over we cannot see well well, it'll be the same one tomorrow it'll be the same one tomorrow won't it they will continue but we have cleaned up the footprints we will have cleaned up the footprints every week get this every week you know we have to clean up this pile of looks like broken uh, not glass porcelain broken what do do you think this is is this it's kind of wet the pile's kind of wet or some broken uh looks like you know porcelain or china in here what do you think that's all about do you think that the bullet was made of porcelain. No, it's... it's <clears throat> Because it is not a real bullet. It was a flower pot. A real bullet is made of metal and gunpowder. A porcelain bullet would be the perfect crime. Clearly, this was a flower pot that was cracked on somebody's head. There's water down here, right? It's probably plastic flowers, so there's not going to be any leaves or stems or anything. Is that why I have a bump on my head? Why I'm not thinking very straight? I don't know why you, I don't know why you have a bump. I might have been in the play. I don't, I, and scene, we'll stop right there. Not bad. All right. 
Not bad at all. But you see, here's a classic improv teacher. What did you think about that scene? It kind of drives me a little bit crazy. We can talk about that some other time. I was happy about it because I Mm -hmm. was not apprehensive. I -hmm. don't care about the audience's experience. I only care about my experience doing it. And not only have I been a little apprehensive about the potential boredom in the scenes in the past, and then I find listening to them that they're simply delightful. That uh, I feel like we're fulfilling what we owe. It's a very low bar. The, The audience has chosen to participate in this by listening to this. And so it's under some ongoing negotiations as to whether they will continue to listen to it. But I I think as long as you gave a good warning that this was going to be boring. And so the boredom, I guess you were asking, is the boredom actually successful? And that is something I don't know. I still found it interesting. So maybe, well, is that, does it have to be boring for the participants for it to be really boring? When I say it has to be boring, what I'm trying to do is break down your perception of what is boring and what is interesting. There are many people who walk into this feeling like, if I don't have something interesting and hilarious to say, and this is not necessarily my lesson for today, it's tangential. If I don't have something interesting to say, I can't say anything interesting. And the truth is that we can discover something together. Neither one of us had in mind when this began. In fact, it was kind of clunky with some narration up top, narrating the action rather than living the action, that we were janitors at a theater cleaning up after a stage show. Now, that was discovered. That was purely discovered. And through diving into that reality, what is it to do that job? We suddenly found out that we could be amateur detectives. Neither of us had seen the play yet, so we can try to guess what happened based on the carnage left on stage. And I think that's a cool, fun idea. I think that's as funny as any idea you'll see on SNL, and it's going to be in the execution, and I thought we executed it B+. Yes, I thought that was a good idea of yours. I think that I had already set up a character who had some head trauma or something in my uh, interpretation of what boredom means is to say things that are more boring than a human being would actually say without having some prior blows to the head. We're several weeks in, and you've had a number of head trauma persons. Maybe next time we do this, there's an old improv canard, and we can... I don't want to debate it. In fact, I'm a little anti-canards in general. But play to the top of your intelligence. Again, the meaning of that has been debated entirely too many times. But it's this idea, I take it to be this idea of, you know what you know. As a human being, you know what you know. And you know a play takes about one and a half, two and a half hours. You know there's intermissions. You know how it works. You know how the world works. And don't be afraid to try to be clever or creative about outsmarting how the world works is a little bit of a clunky explanation. I'm, again, kind of bringing in this compact between the uh, performers and the audience that the performers know how the world works and the audience, to some extent, and you've implied that this is less so in improv than in other media, understand the conventions of what's going on. And especially if they understand the conventions of improv, then their expectations will be low. Is that... (laughs) Mark, you have repeatedly, I'm not sure if you, uh, <laughs> I listen to it, I haven't listened to quite enough of your other stuff to know if you're constantly beating up yourself, beating up your work, beating up everything. But I think you, you think you're very concerned. I think you are too concerned with the idea that there needs to be an asterisk. There needs to be a, of, of like, don't get your hopes up. Okay. You know, and it's almost like setting the groundwork for failure if we're always telling people or always worried ourselves that this is not succeeding. I guess I'm less picking at the worry part of it and the self con I mean, we've, we've kind of gone over that ground enough, but the social conventions, like if you watch something on TV that is not a reality show, you're probably expecting something that needs to grab your attention right away. Sure. Uh, if you know that it was a film, technically, you probably have heightened expectations for how much money went into shooting it. If something is on YouTube or it's a reality show, you know, you have all these genre expectations and then you judge based on what you think the thing is going to be. Yes. I mean, it's difficult in improv. One of your earlier lessons is nobody knows what the rules are. So it's less clear what the genre is, which to refer to that performance art again, I see it closer as being like performance art that it is so open that it's like the audience members agreeing to just be open-minded. There's a product process thing going on. And part of the interest in improv, well-done improv, is 
seeing the process and seeing you and I make a discovery, I think, and as a consumer of improv, is fascinating. You ever watch Bob Ross, The Joy of Painting, Bob Ross, and he always does the background first and then does the middle and then does the foreground. And again, I would never buy a Bob Ross style painting unless I knew it was a Bob Ross painting, in which case I would buy it and display it proudly with a certificate of authenticity right next to it. It's just not my style of painting. But watching him paint is engrossing. And I think, you know, it's like when he's got the background and middle ground done, he's going to put something in the foreground. And he even says, going to get dangerous. This is going to be crazy. And he gets that knife and loads it up with just Van Dyke Brown and just slashes it right down the middle. You know, a knife. He actually uses what a knife. What are you doing? A painting knife. There's a, okay, there's a triangular right. tool that he uses and right down the middle of the page, just with this big black or brown mark, you know? And at the time, it's like, what are you? doesn't make any sense. I'm a little bit confused, but he turns it into this beautiful tree and this beautiful foreground. And it, it makes sense. But part of that is Bob Ross just diving in. I'm going to intentionally ruin what I have. I don't know what's going to happen. I'm presuming it's going to be a tree. Little do people know he actually has already painted the paintings he's painting. And is sitting right next, just off camera. Uh, so he has a model, but it's this idea that you have to just kind of dive in and do something and let the painting talk to you, let the sculpture talk to you. And there's some feedback going on between the painting and Bob. And I think watching that is interesting. And we will sit and watch Bob Ross paint and talk because it's interesting to see an artist create. I think that is the draw in improv. Sure, we leave saying, man, that one scene was so funny where it was that there's people trying to be detectives. That sure was funny. But in the moment, I bet our biggest laugh is going to be when we discover these janitors are trying to be detectives. That's really funny to me. And I had trouble at the time, again, because I had painted myself in a quarter character-wise, but I, not interminably so, you know, I could have done a reversal, but really just was having trouble thinking of what is the best way to respond to, you know, maybe because I was not quick enough in creating that vivid sense of what you were discovering on the ground and creating that universe with you. It seems like there's an amount of cooperation that I was falling short. Again, I'm not criticizing myself. I'm just giving my analysis of how the scene went. Sure. That is fine. That is fair. Another thing, too, is even in the most successful improv scenes you're ever going to see, only one in 10 lines is really funny. And it's those other nine lines that people stress about, they're worried they're not being funny. When the expectation is that they shouldn't be, and we can have huge swaths of time where people are not laughing, or we're just living in this moment, that are still going to be successful. And then we will discover that one line out of 10. We won't sit on it. We won't wait for it. We will discover it around line seven, eight, nine. Oh, wait a minute. Now I see something, and we will make a discovery, and we'll splash that paint across the canvas and do something bold and make that discovery. And then we'll go back, and with our other nine lines, we're just filling in the leaves on that tree, if that makes sense. Yes, and I want to draw an analogy if this is sort of like, I want to respond to what we ended with last time, which you, you were raising this idea about libertarianism, and I was getting me thinking more fundamentally about the social agreements that we make, even to be part of a society. This social contract, you're familiar with that term? Sure, I've heard it. But there's something comparable to any institution that we enter into. And by institution, I, I just mean an instance of, so we're doing a scene together. We're doing a podcast together. If I, as part of this podcast, cross certain lines, then I would be violating the podcast form. And there are a number of ways that I could make that mistake. And some of them would be simple misunderstandings of the form. And some of them would be morally pernicious in some way. And so I'm wondering what you think, you know, I've been talking about the deal that the audience and the performance make. We're participating this certain kind of performance genre, and you have an interest as audience member in enjoying that, and so you adjust your expectations, not necessarily lowering them, because you <laughs> assume it's going to be terrible, but to what the thing, this is a podcast, it's not sponsored by NPR, people are not expecting, hopefully, detailed background soundscapes under everything we're doing, for instance. Now you got me doing it. If people are enjoying this, what are people enjoying about these conversations? It's probably the fact that it's not scripted. And if we were to script this, we could probably have some really in-depth, interesting things with footnotes and all kinds of asides and then really lay something out. But we're not. We're just talking off the top of our heads. And I think people will find that 
interesting seeing where our brains go, seeing where our thoughts go. And I think it is that that is compelling. There's another, oh gosh, another classic improv canard, which drives me a little bit crazy. It's this idea that there's no mistakes, nothing is wrong, and that the smallest mistake can be woven in and into the pattern. My problem with it is, is that while it can certainly be true and certainly is a good mindset to have spiritually, the reality of that is real messy. It's real messy. Another way to think about it is every plot twist in a movie is just a giant denial. Everything you thought was true is no longer true. And talking about breaking the audience's contract, A, we don't want to waste their time. That's A. B, we want to present them with something, you know, talk about matching their expectations or meeting their expectations. Part of meeting or matching their expectations is asking them to bend or break their expectations or asking them, us, to try to go beyond or, or flex their expectations a little bit. And if you do it right, you've got a plot twist in a movie. You've got Silence of the Lambs. You know, you've got usual suspects. I'm not saying that's easy, and I think it can be challenging in improv to do that, but some of the biggest laughs I've ever seen and experienced and been a part of are the unexpected moment that occurs that no one could ever imagine having happened. And it isn't what happened, it is that it happened. So I guess I thought that that's what I was trying to do with the twist of that you're describing what has happened and putting two and two together of this character I'm playing seems to have been the victim of some violence just by the evidence of his sheer stupidity. So that the jump to maybe I actually was the victim in the play is not so crazy. (laughs) No, it isn't. You're right. Maybe I should have gone with that more. I I don't know how you would have, though. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) what little we had set up with these characters that that they had some history of doing this. It seems implausible. (laughs) I'll tell you what I liked. Here's an example of using a quote-unquote mistake the top of the scene, I gave you a little bit of guff for like narrating how it works. Okay, we're walking through the curtain and we are cleaning up. I gave you a little bit of guff for that, but believe it or not, especially over radio, over a podcast where we don't get to see people on stage, that could be a really interesting technique. And in fact, if this show were to continue, we could use that technique again. Listen to our own work. Look at the painting we have painted already, and it will tell us where we put that giant tree in the foreground. Can we do a for instance? For instance, imagine this, a yellow police tape is strung across in front of a bank, and we see one of our janitors from the play enter. He walks in, looks around, sees a man wiping his brow in a suit, presuming to be the bank manager. Excuse me, sir, you're the branch manager here? Yes. I'm sorry, I don't usually do this. I'm a, I am a janitor, but I'm also a detective. Have the policemen have helped you? Have they have they helped you solve this crime? Do we need any help? They just seem to ask me the same questions over and over again. I don't. It was a really straightforward. Do I have to repeat the story to you as well? No, no, you don't. I'm a janitor. Okay, I come in after the mess has been made, sift through the pieces, and try to reconstruct the crime. Okay, well here it is. Um, I mean, there's the the note that the fellow left, and there's uh, you can see uh. There are three bodies there of, uh, of who the, uh, were, were harmed during this. Maybe you can figure out. Uh-huh. It looks like that one's an actor. They have just been in a play earlier today. Some sort of jelly. I, I, I don't know exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, <laughs> I'm the janitor here, sir. I'll, I'll, I'll solve this crime for you. That's what janitors do. Do. Let's see here. Okay. Interesting. Have you thought about brushing for any kind of prints? Sir, uh, that's... I don't mean to backseat janitize. That's what the police do, okay? Now, look, look at, here's what I would do. I take one look at this, and you know what I think? I'm going to need a mop and a bucket. Why? Because there's smears. You see how this blood is smeared? It didn't start there. It got smeared across the floor, perhaps while someone was crawling away, or perhaps when the assailant stepped in it and slid in it, Okay. So that's what I'm thinking when I see these stains. You know what I'm thinking? I'm going to need a vacuum cleaner. Why? Because some lint particles have gotten onto this rug. Now, are these lint particles from someone's suit, someone's clothes that this person had on? Okay. Now, if you want to sweep these up and send them to the police for analysis, that's fine. Or you call a janitor. You know, this this all seems really quite irregular. I, I don't think that... Uh, what? What? You don't think what? That I'm qualified to solve crimes because I'm a janitor? It was an inside job. You didn't hear that from me. That's, uh... Well, I wasn't going to say this, but I think I detected a faint 
urine smell behind the counter. But here's the thing. It was not at the teller station that was robbed. And that tells me an adjacent teller upon finding out that it was a robbery wet themselves. Yet the primary teller, the one who was the focus of the robbery, did not wet themselves. That's an extremely astute deduction. You know, people think of Jander that we just do nothing all day. Are we just coming afterwards and clean up every people's messes? That's not true. We were here all night and we got nothing to do but think about think about these kinds of things. Everything you throw away tells me something about you. And scene. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> all right. That was a very good idea. I was thinking the same way, man. But again, we can listen to our own work. I like this idea of this kind of narrated this thing, and we can pull these characters forward. And what we're pulling forward, you know, you can say it's a premise, but it's also this kind of notion of their their behavior. It's the <laughs> the audacity to just walk into some place and think you can solve a crime. That's what's coming forward, and that's a really powerful thing to play. And I clearly got the sense because as being a bank manager and you you being the wacky uh, janitor detective, that can we just come up with a, another term for straight man? Because I just want to, <laughs> let's say the dupe. Yeah, you, you are that person, yes. It was my job to be the dupe, and yet actually it should be very simple to meet that expectation and establish what is the dupe's motivation. Well, I'm a, I'm a bank manager. There has been some disturbance here. Uh, this is all very unusual and could basically act like Basil Fawlty or any of the other. Uh, yes, I, I think that's a great example in, in the John Cleese classic Fawlty Towers of just someone who is merely affronted by the incompetence and inefficiency of everyone about him. Sure. That was fantastic analysis. That would have been a character that I should have <laughs> well been able to create very quickly. Were I to do it again, perhaps I would try that. 98.5% as good as that character is reasonable bank manager, is meeting the audience's expectations of what a bank manager is. My favorite line, can you guess what my favorite line is that you had? What's that? When you questioned my being there. Look, I don't mean to disparage Janners, but I don't think you should be here. It, kind of towards the end, I loved it. I loved it because that's true. That's what everyone in the audience is thinking. The ridiculousness of a janitor going around solving crimes using their janitorial powers is ridiculous only in a world where janitors don't do that. If we're in a world where janitors do that, well, then it's not ridiculous. A fascist Nazi vampire shoe salesman in a world of fascist Nazi vampires is just a shoe salesman. So to make my character really pop and really be remarkable, we've got to put me in contact with a plain old bank manager and someone who's willing to say this is highly unusual and it is you saying this is highly unusual that the audience says yeah it is this is ridiculous yes and in fact i only said that because i had a half-formed idea that what you should be discovering is that actually the person you were talking to me was somehow responsible and thus the uh, clumsy inside job comment that led nowhere and you took that and came up with this thing involving urine, which is, of course, always a, a fine resource to draw on. <laughs> I'm a janitor. Janitors find pee. We're not turning it around on me. It seemed like you were turning it around on a, a, a second between two tellers, neither of which were party to the conversation or even present. That is fair. That scene was probably 90 seconds, maybe two minutes. That scene could go on a lot longer. And all of those things you have discussed could all be discoveries for later. To round this out, since clearly I've been going very light in the philosophy this time, but... Uh, <laughs> there have been some things. I, I have some guesses. I have some guesses for what you have. Well, let me confirm your guesses and follow up. Do you think that the sort of deal that we make to participate in an activity, and I want to just say the broadest possible activity, being a citizen, being in society, that there are rules that are sort of natural to the form, that is the idea of social contract theory. Or that it is something that is really under constant negotiation. <laughs> Do you see the difference of the, the alternatives? A little bit. So to bring it to comedy, you know, Seinfeld and Curb Your Enthusiasm, like a lot of the, I think it's a very Jewish form of rabbinic, there are rules about everything. <laughs> and so thinking that, you know, you've violated some social norm that the Larry David character is constantly saying, you know, putting forth some 
thing that maybe the other person in the conversation like, no, I don't even know what you're talking about. You're making this up. Or there are negotiations about like whether it's okay to eat something that's just fallen on the floor. That's a, that's a known thing because, you know, there's the three count rule. Whether you think that that works clearly that, you know, improv is such a open-ended, like performance art kind of thing that, you know, we could change genres in the middle. We could challenge genre expectations. We could do all these things because that's the nature of things, is society itself similarly really open so that really we have very little to expect from each other other than we do not physically abuse each other or are, as Larry David might have us think, much more detailed rules that we're really obliged to follow. I think there are lots of little rules. I think there are probably more societal rules than we even realize. And some of them, again, are very arbitrary and may not necessarily have much reason behind them, but they also change and flow and, and move and they're kind of alive. And as generations are born and generations pass, I think there is some flexibility in there. And I also think that there are probably a lot of expectations that we have around those rules that actually aren't true. I, I remember like when Chicago was going to ban indoor smoking, none of the bars and restaurants could smoke. And at first it was a voluntary thing. And the city was essentially said, Hey, if you want to ban it, that's fine. We, you know, we got your back. That's fine. But in the span of about, <laughs> about 18 months, it was hard to find a place inside to smoke. Yet when they said it was going to happen, people are like, Oh, that'll, that'll never work. That's dumb. What bans indoors? That's going to be terrible. I mean, despite the fact that only like one in 10 people are cigarette smokers, yet 70% of the population said it wasn't going to work. You know, it wasn't like, it was just the cigarette smokers who said that's a bad idea, who would clearly have their own, a selfish interest in continuing to smoke. It was everybody who thought that would be a bad idea or it wouldn't last or, yeah, we'll, we'll wait and see, but or it's going to take a long time. Yet it, it happened so fast. It had turned out we didn't realize how much people hated smokers, secretly hated smokers and wish they would go away. And it's almost like finding someone you've known for a long time. You didn't realize they have the same birthday or they're from the, from the same town you are. Oh, wait a minute. You grew up there too. Oh my gosh. Do you know someone? Where'd you go to high school? You know, it's like smokers drive you crazy too. Oh my gosh. I I didn't know. You know, yeah, it happened so fast. So I I bet there are some social things that we're living with right now that are just teetering on absolute collapse. Yet we would never guess it. Well, and I think that smoking thing is a great example because that's clearly something that smokers would then be saying, you're violating my, my freedoms, that this is not part of what I agreed to. Just to be in society that I wasn't allowed to smoke around people. Yeah. That even if it is doing some harm to them, it is a tangential enough harm. It's not like me stabbing you. Well, it is a byproduct of something that I am taking on myself. In other words, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I want people to smoke around me. So therefore, I will smoke around you. Yeah. Well, you know, run for city council or put it in your blog. One of the two, you know. (laughs) So something that's under negotiation. With libertarianism, you had brought up specifically just what we owe to each other financially, because that's the same people that don't want there to be smoking bans would also be saying, you can't force me to give to charity. And that's essentially what's going on if there's any sort of redistributive tax system or really anything in place. Yes. Like, it's fine if I want to go to my private charity or my church or whatever and give a good portion, like, that's just all. But yeah. the fact that you as a society, the people with guns, ultimately, if it's a law, if I scoff at it enough, yeah. somebody is eventually going to come and fine me. And if I refuse to pay the fine, then I'm going to be in jail. And they're gonna, there's going to be a gun involved. Any rule, no matter how trivial, <laughs> if it's the government putting it into place, at the end of that chain is something that could kill me. And so maybe we better be a little light. We could have all these social mores, expectations of each other. It's impolite to smoke. You could give people dirty looks. You could kick them out of their private establishments. But maybe it should not be the government's job to force people to not smoke or to support the needy. Good. You want to go find a piece of unclaimed land and start your own? <laughs> go for it. But guess what? You ain't gonna, it ain't going to happen. I bet throughout history, there have been hundreds, if not thousands of societies that have come up and have been very freedom-based and very libertarian-based, We're talking like, you know, from caveman times through the Gauls, you know, different tribes of these people. And guess what? The organized tribe next door came over and kicked their butts because that's what organized tribes of humans do. That's what we're really good at 
you know, talking about is religion or this whole idea of family or, or duty to something bigger. I think that is a piece of, of humanity to a degree, perhaps to a very large degree. And boy, when humans decide they want to do something, it gets done. I think when they, <laughs> they let go of themselves a little bit, some pretty amazing and terrible, generally terrible things can happen. But you're not going to get Rome. You're not going to get the Chinese dynasties. You're not going to get any of that stuff in anything resembling a libertarian system because anyone next door who's ever so slightly more organized will kill you, just as you said. I don't know that I said that specifically. <laughs> well, as you said, someone there's always someone on the other side of that bayonet. Yes, that was within a society. Between societies, that is a different thing. Well, we're all between societies until one society gobbles them up, and now we're one society. There you go. This is a good enough point to call an end. I think I probably gave it away. Toward, well, let me tell you what discovery was the, your thing today. Is, is that not the theme? It ended up being the theme. But it was kind of tangential to that, kind of close to that, this idea that... We discovered that theme as we went. Indeed, I'm going to follow that rather than what I came on stage with. The audience heard our exchanges, so why should I try to drag something in that I had in mind before this even started? It's going to look weird and strange and out of place. I'm going to follow what we've created together. That's going to be more valuable. The thing I came in with was this whole idea, and it's kind of close, that a premise is only funny when it is revealed and never again if you don't play it well. So we can reveal any premise we want. These janitors at the theater who clean up and solve crimes, that's a pretty funny premise. And we agree, that's a, that's a funny idea. You can see that it's got some legs to it. But you have to execute it well. You have to play it well, or no one will laugh again. You come with the funniest premise you want, I can give it to my first grader, and they can ruin it. That ain't hard. Ruining a bad idea is easy. It's taking that one fun, interesting, cool idea that we discovered and playing it well, that really is going to make, that's your paycheck right there. That's the difference between a great improviser and a fair improviser is milking lots of laughs and lots of things out of one simple idea. So see, I had thought the premise was that we were doing something as boring as possible. So <laughs> I had a different understanding of what the premise was. I think that, that my execution on that one was okay. On the second one, even though this character that I should have been playing was the dupe, what I was in fact doing was the improv dupe when you try to involve a civilian that you came in with a nice sophisticated premise that we'd worked out, didn't know where my mark was. I I was, I was, you know, sure. Give me three minutes. I would have been right on it. (laughs) I was good post gaming it. But at the moment I was just as taken off guard by the improv scene as that character in the scene would have been taken by the actual situation occurring. Perfect. It's just acting is reacting. It's just reality. Tell me what you think mine was. I think I, laid on it pretty specifically, but there were a lot of the idea of social contracts and social expectations that came up on this whole idea that how important, how heavy, how valued both in reality, how are they valued and hypothetically, how should they be valued? This notion of social expectation and the will of a large group of people and thinking about people in a large sense, in a gross macro sense and what their expectations and thoughts and feelings are. Well, and that that is ultimately the source of what is alleged to be the rights that we have, that these are really not sure. things that are natural consequences of the form of being a society in the first place, which is what all the social contract theorists thought, that it's, uh, Thomas Hobbes, who kind of came up with it, said, look, the state of nature is so terrible that we would do anything to be out of that. And so we just give up all of our freedoms as soon as we get in this. And it's okay. In fact, we should have, you know, one tyrant, the Leviathan that is just ruling over all of us. That person is not having to obey the social contracts. The rest of us that we are just so uh, frightened of the, the world outside of society that we have already, not just that we should, but we already have given up any expectations of even fair treatment. <laughs> and so, of course, guys like John Locke and subsequent John Rawls, other folks that were kind of building on this said, no, of course we have lots of expectations. And if those are not being met, we have a right and maybe even a, a duty to overthrow this evil system. And, you know, so we still have that as a very active part of our political life today of people being sick of whether it's you're complaining about minority rule in Congress and how we can't get anything done, the system is broken down, or you're talking about people on the other side thinking the whole election was a sham 
And we therefore, you know, need to go back basically to the state of somebody's violated the social contract. So therefore I can violate it too, or do something to bring back the real society, the thing that I've actually agreed to. And I think it's probably so ingrained, certainly in, in American society, I can't speak for other societies, that you can leverage the idea, someone broke the social contract to manipulate people. And you can actually, even if it isn't true that someone broke the social contract, you can create a scenario where it is true and convince people that it has happened and that it requires immediate extreme action, that that is the, the, the worst thing you can do, even if it isn't actually happening, unfortunately. Now, one of the parts of the social contract of being an audio-only medium is that we will not do things that require our audience to have a visual grasp of that which they cannot grasp. But nonetheless, I'm going to unveil our one remaining judge, the only one who had given a, a real answer two episodes ago. And here is Chicky. Hello, it is I, Chicky. And I am casting judgment upon you because you have come to me looking for my wisdom and my superior strength and thinking. Is that a chicken puppet? For people, we're actually on a Zoom call right now. We can see it looks like a... I am not... I don't, I'm not exactly sure. I haven't... I, I'm not a species. This. I am not a chicken. I am not a duck. I am my own creature. And it is very impolite for you to explore. But if you want to describe what you see uh, visually with your eyes, you may do that for the audience's sake. For they cannot be old, my beauty. I see a chicken puppet, clearly a child's puppet, with a, a white tuft on its head and a little bow tie, and uh, that's what I see. That is uh, the the famous celebrity Chicky, well known for the uh, Ask Chicky YouTube Instagram channel. There's some. What what have you been doing? I have done many things in the entertainment world, as well as spreading my wisdom throughout the, the universe, but I did not appreciate the conditions under which the judging took place, and so I will not judge any more of your silliness. Okay. I think that you both stink. Okay, right, thanks, maybe, Yeah, maybe that's enough. Maybe that's, uh, all right, <sighs> Chicky is, uh, Chicky is stormed off. I, I guess we, should we just decide ourselves? I, I gotta say that the, uh, the improv, even though it might not have been the lesson that you wanted to convey, was, was very valuable this time. And clearly I was just shoehorning the philosophy in, even though uh, it eventually became something that, you know, that actually was my ultimate point that I don't think the social contract is something that is given by the structure of what a state is itself or by human psychology. I think that it is something that is under constant social negotiation. And so if you say taxation is theft or some goofy stuff like that. If you make these libertarian claims, then you're basically giving an opinion and there might be evidence for that. You'd want to look in the historical record. How have things worked out when we've allowed this kind of stuff? And so there's definitely, unfortunately for, we all want to argue against abuses by the government. We want to argue against too many demands, too many rules, but we can't do so based on it's against human nature to order me around that much. Or, you know, you just have to really argue it based on the experiences that people actually have. <laughs> Do you feel stolen from when people take taxes from you? How much you know, is mandatory military service? Is that too burdensome or not? I think absolutely it's too burdensome. I, I think there should be as few, given that there is a gun behind every law and potentially sending people to jail, you should not make laws for sort of cosmetic reasons, certainly not policing people's morality. No, well, I couldn't agree more. I think People getting lost in abstractions is a weapon and a tool used to manipulate people. And I can come up with some kind of abstraction. You know, right now we're seeing, oh, what's that, you know, critical race theory. It has become an abstraction. What is it? Well, what it's whatever you want it to be. And it's either welcoming you for breakfast or it's hiding under your bed. And you get to decide. And you can't look under a rock and find critical race theory. Well, clearly this is what it is. It's not concrete. And because of that, its definition is completely malleable to whoever wants to throw it around. And it's unfortunate that humanity does this all the time, all the time. And we fall in love with an abstraction uh, and we can bend and manipulate it. I mean, define patriotism, you know, I mean, she whiz. So when you said we have to look at people's actual lives and how they're living them and are they able to experience, able to follow their happiness, that, that's really all that matters. And if, if we want to call law A, socialist and call law B 
libertarian, that's fine. Are they impacting people's lives in a positive way? Great. In a real concrete positive way and not just giving them warm fuzzies, then yeah. <laughs> so you, again, in the last couple minutes, brought in a different Pandora's box, <laughs> the critical race theory thing, which like the libertarian thing is so fraught with, you know, so many that I can't, I can't start on it, but let's, Gee, Bill, I really enjoyed learning from you today. <laughs> and I enjoyed learning from you too, Mark. And scene. We've now entered the official uh, post game, which we should be short on because, man, this was the longest episode ever. Boy, it sure was. Yeah. Something occurred to me that I wanted to recommend, and I wish I could uh, identify more specifically, but you're familiar with Conan O'Brien's podcast. Are you not? Uh, yes. Conan's needs a friend or is looking for a yes. friend. It's a very good podcast. It really has, you know, I have not been that interested in the talk show format for a long time. Like, oh, you know, I'll watch little bits on YouTube, but the actual interviews themselves, like it just seems like kind of a stale format. And maybe there's somebody you'd want to see interviewed, but nothing that at this stage in my life, I would want to make a daily part of my routine. And so I have not kept up with his talk show, but I have enjoyed other work that he's done. These like travelogue specials and you know, the podcasting format, which is really yeah. great for him, just, you know, is such a good example of improv and has prevented this strong, like, like every, I don't know, when you listen to enough of a podcast, enough hours, then like it prevents a very clear model of a way of being, <laughs> of a way of, a way of being funny, an attitude. And I, and I think about, he'll talk about in his, his daily life, how he has to, he would start joking around the way he does with everybody with his wife and his wife would be like, no, not with me. And I've yeah, totally yeah. experienced that, uh, you know, even recently of in my family life, trying to use the tools that I have learned in entertaining podcasting and it doesn't fly. Well, you know, like, but before the internet, the power of a talk show was I get to see people I never would have seen. I get to see a Hollywood celebrity talk. I get to hear their actual voice and have a, you know, it's like, oh, that's fantastic. I would never be able to do that. And my local newspaper, you know, maybe they'll run a few... AP stories about Hollywood here or there, but it's just like, how else am I ever going to hear any of these, these, you know, celebrities or things? Oh, you know, and it's, it's on Johnny Carson or, or, or David Letterman. It's like, and, and, and they end up, but now thanks to this, this profusion of media, there's somebody following all these celebrities around. I can see old movies. I can see kinds of clips and things. And those talk shows, it would be a little, a little formulaic because they're pitching their movie. So part of the conversation is always go see my new movie, go see my new thing. You know, I got a new record album coming out, but now we don't have to, I, I know they've got a new, I can see the previews online whenever I, I don't need to see a clip from the movie that they brought in. So I can see that thing online. In fact, I saw it weeks ago and I read the, the variety article that showed up on my newsfeed that the thing was in production and that <laughs> I knew the movie was ever, isn't going to happen. So to, for a chance, I think with these podcasts and Conan's thing, among others, is a chance to actually get beyond that get beyond the transactional and get to like really know these people and really cut loose and just have them be themselves. And I think that's probably more interesting ultimately. And I can kind of pick and choose the celebrity I want to watch. Nothing was worse than turning on Letterman. And, oh boy, I hate all those people. None of those people interest me. I may as well just go to sleep. So the particular, you know, this was not just a, a general recommendation for Conan ah, O'Brien okay. needs a friend, Fair enough. which Fair enough. people probably are aware of that if they, if they care about podcasts or care about him. But a specific thing that I was tempted to reference when we started our scene that he'll sound effects theater, that at some point he, he stumbled across the idea of doing Foley by saying the word, by saying <laughs> sweep, 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 sweep. And so, uh, you know, that's, it's very hard for me not to think of that. That's fun. That shtick. So I believe that is in, I see in, in searching sound effects theater, that's like the Seth Rogen episode, the John Krasinski episode. I'm sure he's done it in many others. Oh yeah. Oh, that's fun. That's a good, good bit. Good bit. Have I recommended, maybe I already have Joe Para. Have I recommend? Not to the audience. So yes, tell us more okay. about <laughs> Joe Para. He's just this great, painfully normal appearing guy, sounding guy. I think he, I think he kind of is that way, but he's um just this kind of upstate New York, upper Midwest kind of believe those two regions are similar to each other hmm. are, you know, behaviorally, culturally similar upstate New York through the, through the Rust Belt over the upper Midwest. Interesting. Anyway, he's a funny guy. He's just ridiculous and, and, but very sweet and very heartfelt and very thoughtful. So a whole episode of his show might just be him waiting in a beauty salon for his grandmother to get, get her hair set 
And he couldn't be happier to be there. And I think in this day and age, I think when, when people are like, boy, I sure love that Ted Lasso because it just had, it had a little bit of heart to it. It wasn't just so nihilistic. It wasn't so, <laughs> wasn't so loud and fast that sometimes these things that have some heart to them are, I think, a little bit more impactful. So he's got a show on Adult Swim and a few specials floating around on YouTube. But yeah, I can't say enough about uh, Joe Para. So as Joe Para Talks With You is the name of the show? Yes. And you had sent me an episode, Joe Para Talks You Back to Sleep. Yes. Which, yes, I found charming. And this is uh, uh, one of the comments that I, I, I'd gotten from Tim Sniffin, the fellow that introduced us, hey, was yeah. that you gave me a recommendation on the first episode. And then the, the next episode, I was demanding another recommendation from you and did not react in any significant way to the first one. And the truth is, of course, that if we're going to do these recommendation things, we're not going to get to every single thing. I mean, I, your, your first recommendation was of your, uh, your open jam. Sure. Or, An idea to see who I am. We've never met in person. Yes, yes, which I did watch part of that, but it was sort of a uh, something I didn't want to wade into because it was like you giving lessons to other people, and I didn't want to start like... In fact, I have, I have the entire time we've been doing this podcast, I have your book Oh, okay. right here on my desk, and I have not opened it because I don't want to... I want to have fresh virgin ears <laughs> for your instruction here. At some point, I will feel like I have heard enough from you that I can break in and sort of systematize that. Yes. But uh, yes, any evidence that we can actually partake of the other's recommendations. Yes. All the better. All the but better. I, I don't we'll, we'll expect do. that you have gone to the uh, series of death lectures that I recommended <laughs> one of the last I have, time. I have, I have them flagged. I have them flagged. I was out of town and didn't want to listen to death while I'm at the beach with my family. <laughs> <laughs> That's the complete improviser where all fine books are sold. Available in hardback and e-back as well. I want to get that plug in. With that plug, let us say goodbye. Thank you for listening. Thank you. Thanks, Bill. Thanks, Mark. I should sell my soul. I love you.